For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Diva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. President Trump's visit to Tulsa this past week came and went without any major issues. About 6,000 people entered the BOK Center to hear the speech while protesters gathered in various locations downtown. Neva, what are your takeaways from the weekend's events? Well, I think as we we look back at the event, I think we see that uh, you have the usual the usual issues in play in terms of a rollout of a first rally since March for the president. The fact that there was uh, this backdrop where you had had weeks of uh, uh, organized protests around the country, a lot of conversation in Oklahoma about uh, uh, what would happen in terms of protests, the potential for uh, whatever might ensue, and I think that did impact the. Uh, uh, the attendance to the degree that many people, when there was that conversation about a million, uh, a million tickets, a million requests for tickets uh, out there, uh, it definitely had a dampening effect on uh, dampening effect on uh, uh, folks driving from different parts of the state to uh, to come in for the rally. Nevertheless, it was a strong, uh, uh, solid Republican uh, group that came out to support the president, and uh, I think that uh, what we see is this was the launch of of basically the uh, the fall campaign in terms of messaging. And um, I think in terms of what uh, the impact in Oklahoma, uh, clearly, uh, I think we see that there's still uh, among Republicans and rep- the Republican base uh, in Oklahoma, it is very, very much still Trump country. Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, there were definitely a couple of losers and, and a big winner. Uh, you know, the, the first loser, of course, is the president. Uh, you know, the, the turnout was embarrassing, uh, I think, to say the least. You know, the the images. I, I wasn't I wasn't in Tulsa, but you know, receiving images on Twitter and from folks that were there, keeping me updated uh, of a half full arena uh, in, in the BOK Center, um, I think is is incredibly embarrassing to the president. I think that reports about the the lack of energy in the crowd by the time the president came on. Uh, I think are uh, you know a huge hit to the president's ego, um, and you know Neva's right that you know some of those numbers about a million plus people wanting to converge on the Tulsa area uh, may have kept people away, but those numbers were being touted by the president's own team. I mean, they were the ones saying that this was going to be this massive event, and so it may have been counterproductive to their efforts. Uh, but in any event, the inability of the president to fill an arena, a nineteen thousand seat arena in Tulsa. Uh, in the reddest of red states, I think is is a real indicator of a lack of enthusiasm on part of the president um, or for the president. I mean, even in his stronghold. I think the second loser is Mayor G.T. Bynum. Uh, you know, G.T. Bynum, along with Mayor Holt, whenever they both came into office, were kind of heralded as this new brand of the Republican Party. Uh, these nonpartisan, you know, social media savvy mayors uh, that had bright futures ahead of them. Mayor Holt probably still has that bright future ahead of him. I think Mayor Bynum has decidedly cast himself in the trenches with President Trump uh, and his political capital, you know, just plummeted over the last couple of weeks. Big winner are the Black Lives Matter uh, anti-racist protesters uh, and rally uh, organizers that held multiple Juneteenth events on Friday and Saturday night. Huge crowds and I think a, a real celebration of the progress that's happened uh, over the long term and over the last couple of weeks. 
but also a, a real commitment uh, to the progress that has to happen over uh, the time ahead of us. Oh, and I also, you know, I think it's yeah. Go ahead, Neva. I th- I think it's interesting w- when we think about presidential visits. I think there would be every expectation that the president very well could come back to the state in the fall. Uh, the fifth district congressional race being one of the profile h- highly uh, uh, targeted races uh, by both parties uh, uh, in terms of focus for the fall for the fall general election. And I think at that point, when we don't have uh, uh, potentially as much conversation about an uptick in COVID, which was part of the uh, uh, part of the conversation last weekend when the president came to Tulsa, when we don't have uh, as much of a uh, intense focus on many of these demonstrations and rallies that, that that you talked about, Ryan, that were going on, that were time sensitive, then I think I think we see something very different uh, on the next visit from the president likely, I would think, uh, sometime later this uh, fall. Ryan, I do want to ask about the fact that there there weren't any major issues. Uh, A lot of people worried about what was going to happen. How much does that kind of shine a light on the fact that, in essence, it was kind of a peaceful protest on both ends uh, for for the city of Tulsa? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, there were a handful of arrests. They were, you know, small in number. Uh, You know, I think that the the consequences of of clashes between a large number, I mean, I think the real worry was that if we had 100,000 people show up to get into the BOK Center and only 19,000 were admitted, that we were going to have, you know, a huge number of Trump supporters leaving the BOK Center or the overflow area disappointed and then possibly clashing with anti-racist protesters and Black Lives Matter uh, protesters. And, you know, that, you know, just didn't happen. Um, You know, there were, like I said, a handful of arrests. One thing to point out is that those folks were bonded out fairly quickly, which is a very different process than what most Oklahomans realize when they go into a county jail, especially if you go into a county jail on a weekend. So, you know, we saw some exceptional effort by pro bono lawyers and legal observers to help get those folks out. Uh, But I just want to shine a light on the fact that most people that go into a county jail uh, on on an arrest where they shouldn't be jailed at all end up in there for days, weeks and sometimes months. Early voting has already begun for the June 30th primary with actual voting on Tuesday. On the ballot is state question 802 to expand Medicaid in the state of Oklahoma. Ryan, let's start with you. Why should people vote for this measure? This is almost a decade in the making. Um, you know, ever since the United States Supreme Court told Oklahoma and, and all of the states uh, that part of Obamacare did not require them, you know, that the mandate to expand Medicaid uh, was unenforceable and unconstitutional, and it became a state option. Um, you know, the state's been debating whether to do this for the longest time. For the, the duration of the Fallon administration, what we saw was Governor Fallon, I think, because it was attached to President Obama, refused to do it. Uh, we've seen some interest, you know, from Republicans, but really a lack of any plan. This is a way to capture millions and millions of dollars from Washington, D.C., bring them back into Oklahoma, plug them into uh, to Oklahoma's healthcare and make sure that Oklahomans, hundreds of thousands of Oklahomans now would have access to healthcare. And in addition to that, people that already have healthcare, rural hospitals in particular are facing closure. We've already seen some close, some are on the verge of closure. Bringing this money back to Oklahoma can shore up rural healthcare across the state of Oklahoma. This is a, this is a, a real common sense vote uh, in favor of 802. Neva. Well, I think 802 is going to be fascinating because it is a clear contrast in messages between the yes campaign and now the organized no campaign 
for the voters to uh, look at the information and make their decision. When we look on the yes side, just as Ryan just said, I mean, their argument is bring back, uh, bring home a billion dollars of tax money every year from Washington, D.C., protect 14,000 essential health care jobs, save 28 rural hospitals at, at the risk of closing, and expand health care to nearly 200,000 working Oklahomans. So the counter to that is that Medicaid expansion will break the bank. It means more taxes on hardworking Oklahomans and budget cuts to essential services that we rely on would be the result based on the fact that this would be uh, placed in the Constitution if it passes uh, on Tuesday. So there's a, there's a clear contrast here in message, effect, need, and outcome. And I think, uh, as we've seen in many state questions, while polls would indicate that this has been wildly popular statewide, that the polls have showed that it would pass easily uh, uh, in recent polls a few weeks back, that we have also seen some of these state questions literally crater in a matter of days, such as the Boren tax um, uh, proposal, where it was uh, uh, showed very strong appeal and, uh, and approval ratings, and yet went down. So uh, this is something where voters have to pay attention, but more importantly, they have to look for it on their ballot and make their voice uh, known and, and, and make their vote heard by going to the polls on Tuesday. Or, or early voting uh, uh, you know, today and, and tomorrow at your county election boards. I, you know, I, I think that, you know, Neva's, you know, talking about the polling numbers, those polling numbers are built upon, you know, certain turnout models, uh, you know, who's going to show up at the election. And this is, you know, Oklahoma's first pandemic election uh, or election in the pandemic. So who turns out, you know, what absentee voter uh, rates look like? You know, there's been a real big push both from, uh, from many campaigns, but from 802 in particular, to do absentee ballots, to cast absentee ballots. So it'll, it'll be interesting after Tuesday, in addition to looking at the results, uh, but looking at just who shows up and where they showed up. Did they show up in absentee ballots? Did they show up at their precincts? Uh, did they show up at county election boards for early voting? Uh, and then in what numbers? Um, you know, is the pandemic going to really depress numbers? Now, you know, based on, you know, kind of my anecdotal survey of you know, folks at uh, at the Walmart and Seminole with without mask, uh, and the and the, the the Home Depot up the street from my house in Oklahoma City without mask, and, and the parking lots full. People don't have any problem getting out and about in Oklahoma right now. Uh, I hope that they'll wear their mask, and I hope that they'll show up at the ballot, and I hope that they'll cast a vote regardless of how they're voting. The state Supreme Court shoots down a state question to repeal Oklahoma's permitless carry law. Justices say the supporters of the measure would not be able to collect signatures without first rewriting and resubmitting the petition. Neva, what was wrong with this referendum? Uh, you know, I think uh, I think the justices really they agreed to the points that Attorney General Hunter and the attorneys for uh, the Oklahoma Second Amendment Association uh, had made when they challenged the petition. I think it will be interesting to see. This is one of those issues, clearly, uh, that there are two, you know, two sides that are intractable in their positions, and it will uh, it will be likely that we'll see more conversation in the next legislature, as well as the potential for uh, uh, another initiative petition down the road. Uh, Ryan, yeah, I, you know, there were this was it, the 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 folks that challenged this, uh, you know, this was a kitchen sink approach, both from the Second Amendment Association and from the Attorney General's office. I, I think I counted 12 separate challenges uh, to the gist uh, of, of the state question. And, you know, the justices, I believe, agreed on 
that two of the challenges should stick. Um, and, you know, so that's, we're not going to see this on the November ballot. I mean, it was going to be difficult to make a November ballot anyways. Um, you know, what when we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this with other initiative petitions as well. But, you know, we're coming up on a mid-August deadline of getting everything done and printed for a November ballot. So uh, the, the likelihood that this was going to be on a November 2020 ballot was low anyways. And you know, I suspect that the group behind this uh, and Representative Lowe are going to go back to the drawing board and they'll probably have legislation uh, in 2021 for the legislature to consider, which they probably won't. Uh, and then they'll probably be back at the drawing board with another initiative petition and either asking the governor to set a special election in 2021 or to be ready for the 2022 election cycle. Oh, speaking of that, Oklahoma's high court, however, approved a state question to legalize recreational marijuana for people over the age of 21. But with fewer than two months, it doesn't look like supporters of state question 807 will be able to get it on the ballot. Ryan, will it be able to move forward once the pandemic ends and signature gatherers can return to the streets? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the hope is I'm one of the the proponents of, of state question 807 and you're very grateful for the, the court's thoughtful decision. I, I encourage people to have a it's if you read the court's decision in Ray state question 807, Tavi Kiesel and Johnson, if you look at the court's opinion in that, it's a really thoughtful discourse on the interplay between the state government and the federal government. And the challenge was really whether or not the federal constitution supremacy clause uh, invalidated, preempted uh, the state of Oklahoma from legalizing uh, and creating immunity from state prosecution, limited immunity from state prosecution for marijuana laws, uh, if the federal government still uh, holds it to be illegal. And what they said that it doesn't preempt, uh, the, 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 the federal law does not preempt the state law. It's a great opinion to read about that interplay between the state and federal governments. But yeah, of course, I mean, state question 807 is still there. The secretary of state and the governor uh, among, you know, the, I think some of the, the smarter decisions that have been made uh, at the outset of the pandemic was to stop all signature collection. Uh, signature collection by its very nature is very difficult to do with uh, and, and, and observe social distancing. And that, and that prohibition on signature collection still exists. So as a proponent of 807, um, you know, even if the secretary of state, uh, you know, lifted that, course, you know, I think that we we would uh, we'd have reservations about going out and collecting signatures right now, whether or not that's responsible. But fortunately, uh, you know, the governor and the secretary of state have said we're not we're not allowing signature collection at this time. And we hope that that's in, uh, that they consider holding on to that prohibition, especially as we see spikes around the state of Oklahoma. Neva. And I think we would expect that prohibition to continue for that very reason, as as you say, Ryan. I mean, this is something that uh, uh, given the backdrop of the pandemic, given the fact that uh, it slowed the rate down in which the Supreme Court was hearing cases, I mean, all of the consequences uh, that uh, have been the, the result of the pandemic of COVID, of, of the just the general change in the way we operate, do business, even conduct elections, as we're seeing, I mean, all of the all of the impact. And I think that's going to be the fascinating thing to watch uh, with the results coming in on Tuesday, is is really how did the voters of Oklahoma react to all of this? I mean, and and as you say, Ryan, do they come out? Do they absentee vote? Do they early vote? Do they vote on Tuesday? Uh, or is there a significant drop off in the voting? And uh, and what would be the uh, 
uh, the reasons behind that. I think there's going to be a lot of sorting out, a lot of looking at uh, at this particular primary election, which we know is not like a general election, as we often talk about. It's not like a November presidential election where we have a huge uptick in turnout. I mean, these are your hardcore base voters in both parties and independents who become engaged, have the opportunity to vote in the Democratic primaries if they so choose. And so we will see, uh, I think we'll see a lot about where the mindset of Oklahoma voters are with respect to turnout on Tuesday. Ryan, there's and on, well, and on signature gathering, there's really no urgency right now at State Question 807. Right. Because even, even, even if there was a record pace of signature collection right now and turned in, it's, it's impossible to get everything done in time for a November 2020 ballot. The earliest Oklahomans could consider this would be 2021 with a special election set by the governor or in 2022, uh, possibly as late as November of 2022. So, you know, the urgency of getting out and collecting signatures in the pandemic just isn't there. Um, yeah. Well, Ryan, I've got a question is also because that's that that's one of the questions is uh, the longer medical marijuana sticks around, the more Oklahomans kind of go, well, this is actually good for the economy. It's isn't it a better selling point? The longer medical marijuana seems to thrive in the state of Oklahoma to get sure. moved to recreational yeah. marijuana. Yeah. As a proponent of, of 807, you know, one of the I I had uh, and, and, and along with our supporters wanted to put that out there right away because there are still criminal penalties that exist with marijuana in the state of Oklahoma. People are still going to jail and prison uh, related to marijuana offenses. Um, and we're also losing revenue. I mean, medical marijuana is meant to create a tax that administers the medical marijuana program. It's not meant to generate revenue for the state. So in other states like Colorado, where we've seen enormous amount of money coming into the state budget and the state treasury. Uh, that's because of adult use. And that's where the real taxation and the revenue generation for public education and healthcare takes effect. But you're right. I mean, in terms of public opinion, I think that 807 would be easier to pass in 2021 or 2022 than it would have been in 2020. And Neva, the people that I spoke with, especially the Republicans that I spoke with when recreation or medical marijuana was being considered, a lot of the Republicans say they worried uh, A.J. Griffin, Senator A.J. Griffin, for example, was worried that this would be well, a gateway toward recreational marijuana. So they were concerned about that. Do you think that a lot of the Republicans will speak up if something like recreational marijuana will uh, were to come out to on the ballot? Well, I think it remains to be seen. But clearly, I think there will be the conversation that uh, many voters, when they went to the polls and voted for uh, uh for medical marijuana did it with the understanding that there was a need and it was the medical component, not just full legalization of recreational marijuana for those 21 or older, which is what uh, the the state question 807 would do. So I think there's I think there's a real difference there. And the question again, as as we talk about all of these campaigns, is how much organization, how much money and effort is put behind advocating for or against a certain state question. Medical marijuana businesses are suing to block the state from enforcing new laws. The regulations passed by the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority require owners to be residents for two years and dispensaries must be a thousand feet from a school. Ryan, what are the issues here? Well, the issues really stem from the failure of the governor to sign House Bill 3228. You know, when the, when the governor vetoed House Bill 3228, which was, you know, the, one of the last bills to be passed out of uh, a pretty chaotic, frenzied end to the, the Oklahoma legislative session, which is redundant because it's always a chaotic and frenzied end to the legislative session, even in a, 
and Especially normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in normal times, uh, so pandemic uh, notwithstanding, it was it was still the normal chaotic end. Uh, but the governor vetoed House Bill thirty two twenty eight, which would have resolved uh, a lot of issues that uh, that are you know being brought in this lawsuit right now. Um, you know, when you think about what happened when State Question seven eighty eight passed, uh, there were a lot of people uh, in other states that picked up their families and put all of the, they moved, they moved their, their families and their capital to Oklahoma uh, and invested in Oklahoma's medical marijuana program. Many of them have become very successful. They've hired folks, they're paying taxes, their kids are in schools here. Um, and now there is a, uh, because of a bill passed in 2019, there's a two-year residency requirement. So a lot of these folks' licenses, uh, they weren't uh, residents for two years prior to initially getting, gaining their license. They're you know, the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority is saying that according to this law, they're no longer eligible for those licenses. And the same thing with uh, with property. I mean, they people would go out and buy, get leases uh, or buy buildings uh, for their property based upon the definition of distance to a school. Uh, and then in, in 2019, the legislature changes that. They were going to try to fix that in 3228 to give some, you know, greater either leeway or uh, definition to that. But again, the governor vetoed it. And so now there are a lot of businesses in jeopardy of losing their uh, their leases or being able to run their businesses where they're currently located. I think the residency requirement issue is uh, is a winner for the lawsuit. I think the, the school uh, setback issue is, is a more difficult argument to make to the court. Um, but it's unfortunate that the court has to resolve this and that it wasn't able to be resolved through legislation. Neva. Well, and you're right. I mean, the governor in vetoing the omnibus bill, uh, making the making the statement in the veto message that uh, uh, it was not fully scrutinized was his argument. But the there had been strong support in in both chambers for House Bill uh, 3228. But the legislature uh, declined to uh, uh, to try to override uh, the governor's veto. So it it did leave it in a mess. I think it did open the door as all expected for the uh, for these lawsuits to ensue. And you know, there's some interesting things in the in the legal challenge uh, in terms of what has been said about the fact that I think the language was that there were hundreds, if not thousands, of licensed dispensaries within a thousand feet of a school entrance. I think it's also schools and preschools that are in that category. But the fact that we're talking about such such big numbers, I mean, it does give rise to uh, the argument that there has to be some quick resolution uh, because of the impact, like it or not, uh, whatever the, the public view is on it, the impact on on these businesses from uh, from the standpoint of uh, the state of Oklahoma and the legislature and trying to have a business friendly climate for all businesses that are uh, that are opening up in the state that are legal and have every right to uh, uh, to operate. But now with these these questions that are unresolved, uh, I think it uh, it puts a lot of things uh, uh, with a big question mark with respect to what's going to happen on this and how quickly. Ryan, couldn't these uh, businesses argue about uh, basically a grandfather clause that they had set up the businesses, they had come moved into Oklahoma before these laws had been in effect, so they should still be able to operate? Well, so on on the residency requirement, the, the residency requirement, there's there's actually, and I, I don't think that it's pled in this, I think that there's an argument that discriminating against people on the basis of how long they've been a resident in the state of Oklahoma, or even taking it further, whether or not residency requirements are constitutional under the federal constitution at all, 
um, is is a real big question. Uh, and you know that that can of worms could get opened up with this litigation. And you know we could see the residency requirement for medical marijuana business licenses uh, just attack uh, just attack uh, you know across the board um, as this litigation uh, moves forward. As far as the uh, the licenses with businesses that are within the new uh, OMMA definition of uh, entrance to a school. Uh, you know, that's the grandfathering in there. That's really their argument there is that it's a taking, that the government's coming in and taking away their, uh, their property right that they had uh, prior to this new law that was passed in 2019. And so they're, they're saying that the government, this is an unconstitutional taking. Um, and so it'll, it'll be interesting to see how the court resolves you know, both of those questions. Um, but resolution is desperately needed because you've got hundreds, if not thousands of, of business owners out there uh, that have invested a lot of their capital, if not all of their capital, uh, into Oklahoma's medical marijuana program. And, and you, know, se- you know, several of them could stand to lose everything. Ryan and Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.